Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Amen and amen. Uh, thank you again all for coming. It's great uh, to be able to host uh, this pastors and workers lunch here today. And if you're also visiting and you've just popped in for the Q&A, we are delighted uh, that you're here, even if you're not in pastoral work or in Christian ministry work. But it's wonderful to have Pastor Beg here uh, this lunchtime and great to hear his ministry uh, this morning and all that God has been doing through him this week. There's a number of rules of engagement for this next hour. Alistair hasn't heard any of the questions that you may have. He hasn't heard any of the questions that I may have. So he has the right to refuse to answer any question he does not want to answer regarding thoughts on Celtic and Jose Mourinho and all sorts of things. So he's the right to refuse uh, your question. And what we'll do is we're going to have three sections. We're going to think about the personal life of the pastor. We're going to think about the preaching life of the pastor and the pastoral life of the pastor. So if you can keep your questions in and around those three areas, firstly, the personal life of the pastor, secondly, the preaching life of the pastor, and then thirdly, the pastoral life of the pastor. So let's welcome Pastor Beg up to join us. Pastor Beg, can anything good come out of Anfield? That's a loaded question as a Ranger supporter. Well, I'll tell you, um, there was some good stuff went into Anfield in the form of uh, Kenny Dalgleish and, uh, and Bill Shankly. And I want to tell you my new favorite Bill Shankly story since you didn't ask. <laughs> but as you know, Bob Paisley followed Bill Shankly. And Shankly still predominates over Anfield and he was the great name and the and the great man, Bob Paisley, was largely nondescript in comparison. And yet, if you check, you discover that Liverpool won more when Paisley was the manager than when Shankly was the manager. And Paisley began somewhat diffidently and went into the office, which had been Shankly's office, and uh, discovered that Shankly, for his first day in the new position, had left him a note. And he had written on a sheet of paper, Bill Shankly says Bob Paisley is the best manager in, England fo- in English football. And Paisley put two, two commas in it and sent it to him, changing it to Bill Shankly, comma, says Bob Paisley, comma, is the best manager in English, in English football. So who would have known that Bob Paisley was that good with the English language? Um, but it just shows you what a good education will do. Thoughts on Stephen Gerrard? I love Steven Gerrard when he scored that header in the final when uh, they were losing 3-0. That was fantastic. No, I like Gerrard. Rangers are fortunate. Saturday's a big game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, As, when do we start the proper questions? Uh, this is the last one before the prop. <laughs> so, guys are here going, are you kidding me? Thought- I got a lot of things to do, you know. I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about them. Thoughts on Alex Ferguson? Have you read his book on leadership? Have, did you come across him in your travels? No, I wish I did. Um, I know that there's a very there's a there's an elderly Christian lady in Glasgow whose name I can't remember, with whom Alex Ferguson is very close. He might be his closest connection to the gospel in this lady. Um, no, I, I've read. I I started that leadership book, but I I didn't enjoy it as much as I have two or three. Uh, biographies of Ferguson that I've read. And I think the thing about Ferguson, I was talking with uh, somebody this morning actually, and, and I happened to say, the quote from Ferguson that rings most with me is, is when he said, I have given up everything for football. I have given up everything for football. Or, or I have devoted my entire life to football. And uh, I think that's what it takes. And... Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, he had a good background. We just pray for these guys that uh, some, of the, some of the servants of the gospel that are unknown will reach them with the good news. 
Thanks, Al. So we're first section, we're going to talk about the personal uh, life of the pastor. And sort of after 10 or 15 minutes, there'll maybe be a little mic that can run around if you've got questions uh, focused on the personal uh, life of the pastor. Maybe I'll just tell us a little bit about your conversion. Many of us hear your sermons, read your books, but probably don't know how the Lord worked his grace in your heart and life. Mm. I'm glad to do that. Um, I was born into a Christian home. Both my mom and dad were professing believers uh, when they married. And um, my roots uh, through my father uh, go to uh, Highland Presbyterianism. He was born in, in Wick, um, almost almost all the way to John O'Groats. So he almost fell off the end of, end of the, the, the island. But um, by the time I was born, he had, uh, his family had all moved essentially in a form of the Highland clearances to uh, Glasgow for the sake of family and for work and everything. And um, uh, my parents were involved in a large interdenominational mission hall called the Tent Hall, which was, I think by memory, on, in Steel Street in Glasgow near the fish market, a very salubrious place. <clears throat> it had been put in position after the founding of, uh, after the work of Moody and Sankey at the turn of the century. And as was true of Carruthers Close Mission in Edinburgh, so the tent hall in Glasgow, I think also down somewhere around Sunderland or whatever, there was another one. But um, th that was one of those places. And uh, it combined, if you like, a kind of evangelical fervor with a real commitment to the social needs of the community. So I grew up in that environment in a huge big place. It seated 2,200 people. There were 2,200 people there. Uh, Saturday nights, uh, they, had, uh, they, they were doing seeker services before Bill Hybels had even materialized. They weren't doing it quite like him. You know, you walked in and they gave you a box. They called it pervy. And I haven't used the word pervy in a long time. People under the age of 30 are, people under the age of 30 are going, what is that? But anyway, so you got a box and you got a cup and, and sometimes you got an orange. And uh, you went up and you sat in your seat. Then they did a song. Then it all stopped and people come out with gigantic kettles, big teapots, start pouring tea. And then you sat and ate the sandwiches and the cakes. And it was fantastic, you know. I mean, I, it, unfortunately, there was a whole other thing about to happen. But for me as a boy, this is okay. And uh, you plow your way through that. And then, then it would go into the music. And then from the music, it would go into the preaching. And then uh, from the preaching, it would go into the, the gospel appeal. And so that's the environment in which I was nurtured. I went to a Sunday school that took place underneath the underneath the platform in a kind of little room. And it was there that uh, I first heard, you know, the simple stories of Jesus. And it was on a Sunday afternoon when I was just a primary school boy. I remember going home and I was obviously exercised by what I had heard. And I asked my father, you know, about what the teacher had said. And, and essentially I was saying to him, you know, how, how, how old do you have to be to believe in Jesus? And, you know, my dad was, was a wise man, and he, he just explained to me, you know, it's not, it's not about how old you are or whatever. And, I mean, he tried to really just, I think with most dads, at that stage, you're, you're frightened in case it's a, it's a sort of emotional surge on the part of your children, and they don't know what they're talking about. But, but very clearly explained to me about sin. And I remember he explained to me in terms of my bad temper. You know, why, 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 do you, why are you unkind to your sister? You know, why did you shove her head up against that corner table? And so I got that. That's okay. That's bad. I understand that. And I'd also had a couple of friends in the community that had taught me some new words. That when my ball went way down Bencroft Avenue and I had to go about 400 yards to get it back again, I'd started to use some of those words. And um, so I knelt down by a chair with my dad and, and I admitted that I was a sinful boy, that I needed a, a savior and I asked Jesus Christ to be my savior and to, and my dad told me I should say and, and, and ask him, say to him, and, and make me the kind of person you want me to be. So I did. And, you know, we're all going to get to heaven and find out when our name was entered in the Lamb's Book of Life, you know, actually before the foundation of the world. But anyway, um, th 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 that, that is not, that's not a mythology for me. 
I, I, I remember I actually went back to school and I asked the teacher if I could sing a chorus. Now, I can't sing now and I couldn't sing then, but what I was doing, singing a chorus, you know, in front of my class, that's bizarre. Nobody does that. And so uh, it obviously was something very real to me. Uh, as I, I won't go on further than that, but, uh, you know, as a 15-year-old, as a I, I, was, I was baptized in those middle teenage years, if, especially in a Christian home. You know, there's, there comes a point where the, divine, the sort of divine afflatus of the spiritual buoyancy of the, of the Christian family has to be, has to be sort of earthed by, by, the, by the individual member. And for me, as a boy, being baptized at that stage was, was very pivotal. And that's in the 1960s. And, uh, you know, the, the story goes on from there. It's, it's, um, it's uh, yeah, that's it. Wonderful. Wonderful to hear God's work in your life. You've been in Christian ministry, I'm sure, now for over 40 years. Alistair, can you speak to the devotional life of the pastor? Uh, I know you've, you'll have heard, got all these questions hundreds of times before, but you know, some say, well, my preparation for Sunday morning, Sunday night's my devotional life. Some love to sing. What's, what's the devotional life of the pastor? <laughs> well, there's the theoretical devotional life of the pastor. Then there's the devotional life of the pastor. And then there's the devotional life that the pastor wish he had. And then there's the devotional life that he told people about when he was asked a question like this. <laughs> And then there's the devotional life that his wife could talk about that would probably be a lot better. Funnily enough, in, in America, some fellow, a nice man, uh, launched into a D-min program. And without asking me, he decided that I would be the feature of his, uh, his thing, uh, that he came up with some deal whereby the sort of... Um, the, 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 whatever, whatever benefit there is in and through the ministry of the Word of God is directly tied to uh, this boy's devotional life. No, he never asked me. So he was well into it, and then he had, we had a, a Skype. And so he started asking me all these questions. And I'm giving him horrible answers. True answers, but they're not what he was looking for because he's supposed to get, you know, he's supposed to get a degree out of this. And I felt so sorry for him. And, and, but he, he plowed on to the end, and he, and he sent it to me, and I read it, and I never recognized myself in it at all. I've got a couple of answers to it, and, 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 and I don't mean this to deflect the question. But I, 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 I eventually said, you know, first of all, I said this is a very American question. And now you're asking it, so now it's a very Irish question. But... I said to the boy, I said, do you, ever tell, do you ever tell anybody about your intimate conversations with your wife? He said, no. I said, well, why wouldn't you do that? Aren't they very important to you? They're very important to me. So why wouldn't you just tell everybody? Well, why would I tell them? Would I tell them to impress them? Or would I tell them to direct? Why would I do it? He said, oh, I never thought about that before. So in one sense, I think that the, de the personal devotional life of the pastor, and I say this again not to deflect the question, but there is something that is essentially inherently personal and private. So that if we were then to speak of it in a certain way, we may create the impression that we are something that we are not, or that we may reveal the fact that we are nothing like what other people think we are. And the very vulnerability of it is such that I find myself sort of retreating into the arms of God. Now, with that all said, I use Murray McShane <laughs> in the structure of my own personal Bible reading. I have it on my uh, Truth For Life app, if you don't have the Truth For Life app. <laughs> Um, what's a, what's a truth for life thing? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, th that's what my wife said. Uh, the, the, um, so, so, so I, 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 I have that. I have all the things that you have, and I have all the responsibilities that you have too. I have a, a sort of a prevailing sense of Psalm 139 that 
I, I want to live, I want to live in that, in that world. I want, to, I want to live my day, oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Therefore, there's no point in me giving you any palaver or, 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 or I, can't, I, can't, I can't tell lies to you. Therefore, there's amazing freedom in the vulnerability of acknowledging, God, you know everything about me. Every bad thought I've had, every selfishness, everything. You search me and you know me. And your interest in me is amazing because although you've got an entire universe to look after, you know when, when I sit down and you know when I stand up. So if you like the kind of Brother Lawrence practicing the presence of Christ, that awareness that, that uh, he, he, he's, as much, he's as much in the, and this is a very important again in sort of uh, architectural terms where people get all really riled up about church buildings and Jesus is really in that one, but he's not in that one, you know. But he's actually in the disabled toilet as well because he's, he's, he's omnipresent. Therefore, we can talk to him all the time. We live in the light of his presence. And then uh, when I get fed up, I get the blues. I'm not clever enough to get depressed. Um, Christopher Ash gets depressed, <laughs> which is understandable because he's so blooming clever. But I told him, I said, Christopher, I can't get depressed. I'm not funny. I'm not clever enough. But when I good when I get the blues, I, I I use the hymn book, and I try and I try and sing myself back onto key. Having said that, I can't sing. But you know what I mean. When all thy mercies, O oh my God, my rising soul surveys. Transported with the view, I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. Unnumbered comforts to my soul, your tender care bestowed. Before my infant heart conceived, from whom those comforts flowed. You know, that sort of, woo, that's, that's kind of what it's about. <laughs> it's, uh, as I say. If I could ask a follow-up question. No. <laughs> it's really an extension of that Alistair and that was so helpful the pastor growing in holiness and naturally there's we've many friends who've had difficulties in the ministry things are happening as we see online with people in the ministry have you any advice for us as we seek to grow in holiness and well you know McShane McShane said you know that the congregation's greatest need is their pastor's godliness, you know, not his giftedness. And it is a great danger, a great snare, isn't it, when God gives gifts to the church that if he has entrusted us with something, that we begin to deviate from course in that regard. Um, you know, I'm not a big one on sort of accountability groups. Um, you know, let's all meet on Tuesday and I'll tell you how bad I am and you tell me how bad you are. There's something inherently Scottish about my unwillingness to do that. I mean, God knows how bad I am and so does my wife and most of the people that are on my pastoral team do as well. So, you know, I don't need to have a coffee and do it. But I've also noticed, I mean, this isn't recorded, is it? Yes, it is. Okay. Then I won't use any names. But some of, the prom some of the prominent guys that have collapsed in pastoral ministry were in accountability groups. And one of them was in an accountability group with John Stott. Okay? So here's the thing. If we will tell lies to God in our hearts, it won't be any difficulty telling lies to people on a Tuesday when we have the group. So it is this whole thing of keeping short accounts with ourselves, of, of realizing... You know, when you're, when you're 26 and you see an old guy like me, you think, oh, when you get to 66, you're probably, you're probably through all the, all the tough stuff. But in actual fact, no, it seems to be even tougher. Dennis Rainey, um, Dennis Rainey of uh, Family Life Today, that I don't know if that comes over here, but Dennis is, is a campus crusade guy and whatever. And one time I was with him and we were walking in the street and he, and, and he does all this stuff about the importance of family and your wife and look, you know, the whole thing. And I says, what do you, what, what do you, what, what's your sort of daily prayer? And he caught me way off guard and he says, I pray every day, dear Lord, 
Help me not to become a dirty old man. Help me not to become a dirty old man. I said, goodness, that's a very graphic response. But I would think about it. Think about it. I mean, our congregations think that somehow or another we don't see those magazines in the airport. We see them. They appeal. Therefore, back to Billy Graham, it's not the first look at the girl's legs that will get you. It's the second look. And so being absolutely ruthless with ourselves in relationship to that, whatever, whatever ruthlessness demands is, is, is a key component in it. And then within the framework of our own pastoral teams, having the opportunity, despite what I've just said about you know, devotional life, uh, creating an environment in which we can be sort of genuinely transparent with one another and encourage one another in these things. That's really, really helpful. Also, just a few more um, questions under the personal life of the past. Can you speak to um, friends in the congregation and a follow-up question to that, uh, pastoral friends in ministry together. So how much should the pastor develop friendship with those in his congregation and friends in the ministry? Well, you know, my, the completion of my education in pastoral ministry or the first part of closure was with Derek Prime at Charlotte Chapel. And Derek um, was, was very, very clear about the fact that he did not have any close friends in the congregation. He didn't have any close friends in, in the eldership. And he was able to articulate why that was and, you know, you know why that would be so that, you know, in the eldership, if there's a discussion that finally becomes a difficult one, you know, if you have developed a peculiar friendship with someone, then you may not feel brave enough or strong enough to challenge the person and thereby whatever and so on. And I, I, comple I completely understood that. And so since I revered him so much, I assume, well, that's, def that's definitely the, w the way you have to go. And then I got into a church on my own, and I realized how, how, uh, how lonely it was. And, um, and, then, and then so I started applying. The person said, well, would you like to play nine holes of golf? No, 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 I, I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, well, why not? Well, maybe later, you know, that kind of thing. And then I realized this, this, is, this is Saul's armor for me. This doesn't fit. I mean, I, I'm a genuinely gregarious kind of person. I... I mean, I met a lot of people in the town that some of you have lived here for years you don't even know, you know, and they're my new friends. And, uh, I mean, even the, la the lady in the Heather Lee Cafe, you know, when I asked her for a, for a cappuccino, and, and she says, oh, you don't want this one, you want the one over there. I said, well, what, do I have to go over there and start another line? She says, no, I'll go over there for you. So she went away and did it all for me. She's my new friend. But I, I, um, <laughs> I, I, so I, I, I have... I, I am guarded in those things. I've tried at the, at the level of the, of, of, of the eldership uh, to, to maintain, if you like, uh, a healthy companionship and, and sufficient level of objectivity with each of the men so that in, in, in having to deal with some of the difficult things that, we, that one hasn't lost the opportunity to do so. Um, I'm, the, the, the benefit for me is that my context is such that many people don't know where anybody lives because the, the, the thing is so spread out. There'll be elders in the church that have never been to anybody else's house. I mean, they'd have to go on GPS to find them. Whereas where I was in Hamilton, I was on, you know, I was on the main street. And even people who weren't members of the church would say, I see your lights were on late last night, you know. And so you were in a goldfish bowl. So if you had anybody come over to the house, uh, then they would, know, they would know who it was and the people would know who it wasn't. And then, but you know, there are things that, that happen. I mean, one of the young couples uh, uh, in the church, I remember a Saturday morning, well, I had married this couple and, and I just remember picking up the phone and just wailing on the other end of the phone. And, and, the, and the voice was saying, my baby's dead, my baby's dead. And, and, and Moira had had twins. And one of them had, they'd wakened up in the morning and one of them was gone in a cot death. Now, the, 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 the pastoral engagement with that situation and everything that emerged from it uh, actually led to a friendship, which, uh, and, and I played golf, a lot of golf with 
her husband, and it was the two of them whose marriage crashed, which led to the writing of the book, Lasting Love, and now today they're happily restored and, and going on, you know, and have been married for for about 30, 38 years. So that's a long rambling answer. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't even make sense of it myself. No, that's really, really helpful. So is there any questions from the floor? Maybe one or two questions on the personal life of the pastor. There's a roaming mic with Gary there. So if you raise your hand, and maybe if you tell us uh, your name and maybe where you're from, uh, that'll help us add context to it. The personal life of the pastor. Any questions? You've answered, you've answered them all, Alistair. Uh, you ask oh, there's one at the front here. If you just tell us where you're from and um, give us your question. Hello, uh, my name's Gareth. I'm from Castle Derg, West Huron. Uh, and my question, my, my, my dad is a minister. And just what is your advice uh, for, for pastors or ministers in how much... You know, you say you know you play a lot of golf. How much time, percentage-wise, do you think a pastor should spend doing other activities other than pastoral work? Well, let's use Alec Ferguson as the standard. I have devoted my life to football. I have devoted my life to pastoral ministry. So I think where, where I would want to start is what, is what does that mean? How does that work out? And then work the other stuff in light of those, those commitments rather than starting from the side of uh, like how much holiday do I get? I'm not suggesting that's what you're saying, but the idea of, you know, what's, what's the least I can do to, uh, to make sure I'm covering, covering my bases? Um, the, 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 the structure of a church the demands of a church, irrespective of size, if we're engaged with our people, are, are significant demands. And they are demands upon our time. The most precious commodity that any one of us has is time. It's so what you and I do with our time actually says probably as much to our people about the nature of our interest in them and concern for them. Therefore, um, I, don't, I don't know of a way to say I can parcel it up or portion it out like this. Clearly, the principle, the Sabbath principle, is written into the very fabric of, um, uh, of life Therefore, it must be written into our lives too. Therefore, the pastor has to make sure that in, in some way he is able to be unhinged, as it were, from, from the wagon for at least a day, a day in the week. And then to be ruthless himself with that and to make sure that uh, he, he cares not only for himself and for his well-being, whatever is whatever his interests might be. I mean, I take a Tuesday as a day off. I try and make that day about Sue. Our children are gone. We've got grandchildren now. So people say, what do you do on your day off? I basically say whatever Sue wants to do or whatever she allows me to do. And uh, we have a little competition at the golf club that is a, is a nine-hole event that kicks off at half past five on a Tuesday as it happens. And so if I'm home, I like to go and play in that because it gives me it gives me an opportunity, not just for relaxation, but it gives me a, an, an alien world in which to move because everyone looks at me with suspicion because of what I do. Um, but, our, our, you know, we can't, we can't control so much of it. I think we need to have, I mean, you take a guy like Stott who was so organized. You know, he always said uh, one day in the week, uh, what did he have, one, one uh, week in the, in the month, uh, one month in the whatever, you know, he had it all organized like an Englishman. But, um, and, and I think in his context, that probably made a lot of sense given the demands that were on him. My experience with the younger people, though, is, uh, is that, uh, um, you know, they, they're all talking about the, the danger of burning out, you know. 
I, I think there's a greater danger for some of us rusting out and burning out. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing to me what people, what, what, what uh, you know, gets qualified as, as pastoral ministry. You know, like uh, two hours in Starbucks looking at your laptop. Um, I call that your holiday. Uh, they're, ca- they're calling it their ministry. So, um, anyway, I don't want to be unkind, any more unkind than I've been. I don't know a good answer to the question. We've got to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But I think, I, I, I think in the ebb and flow of life, again, if you've got a good eldership, and the eldership know that you're busting, your, that, that you're working hard, if, if, then, then, then they will not be concerned when they, like, like I, was, I was playing golf. Sounds like I play golf all the time, but I was, I was playing golf with a Jewish guy. And, and I was on the practice tee in a club to which I don't belong. And as I was walking off the practice tee, who comes walking on the, on the practice tee but, but uh, uh, the, the chairman of our elder board? And we both looked at each other and said, what are you doing here? And he was there because his company had an outing, and I was there because I was playing with this guy. But it wasn't a concern to either one of us. Uh, because, but but if, if there wasn't an awareness on the part of the congregation that I'm actually doing the job, if you like, then there would be reason for them to be inquiring about that. Thanks, Alistair. Just before we move on to preaching, we've talked a lot about the minister's self-watch. Could we speak to the minister's self-understanding? You know, Calvin says to know God and to know yourself. It seems to me, although I'm uh, only started in the ministry, that many church fallouts with pastors and elders is a personality thing rather than a doctrinal issue. So how we're perceived, the ministers take themselves too seriously, do we understand ourselves? Um, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd have to look for it, but I have a great quote in there from one of the guys in Charles Simeon's church who said to Simeon, you know, God has really blessed you and you're effective and, uh, and watch yourself. Essentially, he was saying to him, is I think you're getting a bit of a fat head. And if you get a fat head, your congregation will become a bunch of fat heads too. The same is true if, 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 the, if the minister becomes a, a sort of um, an, a, a, an inveterate admonisher, pointing everything out that's wrong everywhere. You breed a congregation where that's their MO. They're immediately looking for, for where the flaw is in the system. And so whatever, whatever our proclivity is, we need to guard against it. And Calvin got that from Robert Burns, you know. Uh, Would to God the gift be us to see ourselves as others see us. And that, again, is where, where a decent friend comes into play. You know, because, uh, you know, if, if I know that somebody loves me, then when they, when they, when they give me one, then, then, I, then I know that they've done it, not because they're just trying to... Uh, mess with me, but we need we need those people. Um, well, I'll give you an illustration. I mean, and the answer is yes. You know, when we're young, we tend. I, when I look back on it, I t- thought I could drive the people, as it were, from behind. You know, so the ministry is f- far too hortatory, or hortatory, as they say in the states, uh, but far too hortatory. So, come on, come on, oh, come on, you know. The people are going out, and they're just dying under the weight of all the exhortations, and um, and 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 so somebody needs to say, "Hey, do, do you understand that? You know, you need to, you need to moderate this in some way." And um, but but I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say that I remember it, in one of my bad bad elders meetings early on, I got frustrated with one of the fellows because he changed his view from one elders meeting to the next. And I couldn't understand what happened until I figured it out, it was his wife. And so she was really the elder, um, but she sent him. So he was like a puppet elder. And then one night I decided it'd be good to tell him that, which was a very bad move, because it wasn't nice, it wasn't kind, it was true, but it wasn't kind. And if you're going to tell somebody that, tell them in private, don't tell them in front of everybody else. And so I told them, I said, you know, why don't you just send your wife to the meetings? Because then we won't have to wait a month to find out what you really think. Well, that went over like a lead balloon. It was like electricity going around the room. So the following morning, I got a phone call from one of my elders. He said, hey, 
that was terrible. And, and he tore me off a strip. And then he said, what I want you to do is I want you to phone this guy up and I want you to apologize to him. And then I want you to phone me up and tell me that you've done it. And that was a real moment of decision for me there because the temptation was immediately to get up on your hind legs, say, hey, you don't really understand, you know, all that stuff. But I knew he was right. And so I phoned him up and I did apologize and, and uh, we, so we sorted it out. But I wouldn't have done it if the brother hadn't been brave enough to take me on. And I wouldn't have done it if God hadn't impressed upon me the absolute necessity of taking it on. So we need, you know, T.S. Mooney from Londonderry Crusaders, you know, he said, every pastor needs a wife if for no other reason than to keep him humble. And our wives have got to be our first resource. We, we're grateful for their affection. We will not be helped by their adulation. Mm, really helpful. Thanks, Al. So we're going to change gears now from the personal life to the life of the pastor as a preacher. Maybe, Al, sir, could you outline your preparation process? We uh, see the tip of the iceberg this morning, a wonderful ministry on Luke 4, and challenged and encouraged by it. But, I mean, years and years of study and preparation. Maybe just outline how you prepare each week. Well, it's, I appreciate the encouragement from this morning, but that was, a, that was really like a classic dog's breakfast. I mean, as I thought about it afterwards, there was no real structure to it at all. If anybody was able to follow that sort of rambling, disengaged thing, then that's a testimony <laughs> to the way, the way God chooses to, to work. To, he helps us to hear what we never heard. But anyway, um, the... The, the, I got this from Leith Samuel a hundred years ago, uh, and uh, and that is, uh, when I come when I come to the text, whatever I can read it, I can read it in Hebrew. I I couldn't do Hebrew; it was a waste of my time. Um, the Greek was okay, so I have access to my Greek New Testament if I'm doing the New Testament. Um, I'm not a scholar; I never have been. I'm a student. Scholars have worked hard so that students like me can benefit from their wisdom. So I come to the text and I think myself empty. In the old days, I used to use computer paper when it used to roll off like that, when it was a ka-ching, 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 and big mounds of it came off. And my Scottish instincts were, I could, I could use that. And so I would use that and didn't have to buy anything. But I used to, I used to I write down then anything that comes to mind, anything that comes to mind. And something, sometimes nothing comes to mind. So that's a short piece of the process. Think myself empty, read myself full, write myself clear, pray myself hot, seek to be myself, and simultaneously forget myself. So think empty, read full, write clear, pray hot, be yourself, forget yourself. That's the process. Wonderful, wonderful, really helpful. Alistair, the place of humor in preaching. Spurgeon's got a couple of cracking quotes about the place of humor in preaching. And you're a naturally very funny person. And it's great when you have some lighter moments in your preaching. Could you speak to the place of humor in preaching? Um, there's nothing worse than somebody trying to be humorous who isn't funny especially in preaching. So the idea of like inserting humor or creating a joke or doing something like that um, is, is, is I, I, don't think there's, I don't think there's really any place for that at all. Now, in Spurgeon's case, he was criticized for his humor. And most people who are funny will be on the receiving end of that criticism, especially from people who never see anything funny, um, which is funny in itself, <laughs> and, uh, but, but, but not to them. That's really funny. And, uh, but see, that's irony, isn't it? And there's a tremendous amount, especially in, in, in the New Testament narrative, that, that, that is, it is ironical, you know? I mean, it, and the, and the, the, the sort of incongruity of it is, is humorous. Now, 
when you read the reports of, of um, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, I mean, they say that there were occasions when the entire congregation descended into spasms of uncontrollable mirth. Now, that's not just Spurgeon was funny. That's the whole thing. He nearly shut the service down, and everybody was laughing. So no wonder he got, he got criticized for it. But it doesn't seem to me that he, he was ever employing it as a, as a mechanism. It was, it was truth through personality. It, was, it would be strange if Spurgeon didn't see things from a humorous perspective because his entire personality was such that he did. Now, if a, person is, if, if a, if a person is melancholy, then he's gonna have to, she's gonna have to work at, you know, not becoming a complete Eeyore for her entire life, you know, in every situation. And if a person is humorous, then the humorous person's gotta also get that under control because it, it can so easily predominate in, in, in what we're doing. And, and if it is used in a way that is apparently self-serving, then, then it is reprehensible because it's, it's clearly taking, taking everything away from what, what we're up there to do. Um, and so, I guess if you're not funny, don't try and be funny. And if you are funny by nature, then make sure that you get a hold of yourself and you don't try and turn the thing into comedy bandbox um, because uh, it's no good. The same would be true of illustrative material, you know, because if you, if you take, and I made a question, I, I said this morning about videos and everything, that's just an old man talking. For those of you who are able to do that kind of thing, I, I, that's fine. But, uh, well, it's not really fine, but anyway, I'll say it is. And, um, uh, but, but the use of illustrative material again it can, can, be, can be so predominating that we build our congregation in such a way that all they're listening for is the illustrations, especially the average business guy who's dragged there by his wife. And, uh, and so in that case, we, we, we've, got to work hard at, we've got to work hard at making illustrative material, it seems to me, obviously subservient to the main point and to the text so that it opens a window that makes the truth that is being conveyed far larger in the mind rather than the, rather than the other way around. And, and people are, are, are uh, you know, if you watch, uh, I don't know if, if you have Sports Center over here, but the same is true in all these sports programs now. I mean, if you don't have attention deficit disorder, you can't really follow what's going on because the, the, the development of thought I mean, they're changing, the, they're changing the thing in the States every 18 seconds. Plus, plus they're introducing commercials at that time. So now on a Sunday morning, you've got a group of people, especially young people, whose brains are going like this all the time. And now this, this is going to be one testimony to the power of the Spirit of God, that that potentially unraveled mind is brought under the control and jurisdiction of the Spirit of God through the Word of God, being brought home to, to the people. No, that, that's really Sorry, it's too long an answer. No, I'll do no. a short answer next. If we're to take Paul's exhortation to immerse ourselves in these things and to grow in these things, how can the minister grow in their preaching, Alice? Or, you know, even there, while it was really, really helpful this morning, you're saying, I would have liked to have done a little bit better if I could. Always. How, how, Always. Do, we, how do we grow as we immerse ourselves in these things? Well, you know, practicing, <laughs> you know, um, you get better by, by doing, provided you're not convinced that you're doing really well. Um, a, na a, na a natural, you know, skepticism about your own abilities and your own stuff. I mean, I'm not saying that out of a, a false sense of self-deprecation. I actually thought about it when I sat down. I thought, you know, I had actually points in that, but I never pointed them out. So, um, how do we grow? Listen to good preachers. Listen, listen to boys that, 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 that I, you know, I am the accumulation of fellows who have influenced me immensely from, from infancy. And uh, I, you know, some of them I have their pictures in my study. I mean, I, I can tell you who's there, you know. There's uh, Derek Prime's there, Alec Matias there, 
Dick Lucas is there. John MacArthur is there. There's a whole bunch of guys that are all looking down on me. And every one of them and another 12 on top of them, like uh, I was talking to my, my brother here, Duncan, and, and uh, Jim Graham of Gold Hill Baptist Church uh, during the, the, the years of 72 and 75 had a profound influence on me in terms of his, of his systematic consecutive exposition of the scriptures and of his delivery. And I can't deliver it like that. I, I, wish, I, could, I wish I could be like Jim. I wish, but you can't be like Jim because you're not Jim. And even if you try, then everyone will know. He thinks he's Jim. Alistair, there's a lot of preaching. Oh, Sinclair's up there as well. Sinclair, my big brother. Yes. There's been a lot of chat over the last 20 or 30 years about redeeming the culture, preaching into the culture, engaging with the culture. What's your thoughts on preaching in relation to those theories? Well, I mean, in terms of our place as believers, we, we are... We are in the culture. I do not pray that you take them out of this world, Father, but that you keep them from the evil one so that the distinctives of, you know, Paul writes to the Ephesians, he writes to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Ephesus. So I always say to our people, we are in Christ, but we're also in Cleveland. And uh, so we need to discover what it means to live in union with Christ in the context of an alien world. And depending on, on what, we're, what we're doing, um, a number of things are important. For example, if we read church history, it is clear that the church throughout history has always been at its best when it has been distinct and obviously distinct from the culture. Therefore, uh, this idea of going to the culture to tell everybody, you know, we're just the same as you. Number one, it isn't true, or if it is true, it's not supposed to be true because you were once darkness and now you are light in the Lord. Uh, you were once dead, and now you're alive, and so on. So that has to carry itself into some dimension in, into life. Take, for example, the issues of, uh, uh, of marriage and uh, uh, human sexuality and everything else. What does it mean for the Christian young person to be in Christ and in Cleveland, working out their own salvation? Well, it means that unlike their, their, their uh, non-Christian friends, they are, they are bounded by the by the law of God and by the, 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 the purposes of God so that the Christian believer has no right to believe anything other than Jesus taught and has no, right, has no freedom to behave in any other way than Jesus has said. So in other words, that will make us markedly different. That will change certain things about us. Now, when we think in terms of then preaching into the congregation, you take, I'm going to try and do uh, Acts 17, at least it's my plan on Friday. But one of the things that's striking about Acts 17 to me, and I think it is relevant to this, is Paul, who does what he does in Acts 17, is the same Paul who wrote Romans chapter 1. So he's in absolutely no doubt about the predicament of a, of a godless culture. He's in absolutely no doubt about the implications of what happens when we become, uh, we, we, be, behind a facade of wisdom, we become fools who exchange the glory of God for, for, for things that creep and crawl and fly. He's in no doubt about what happens to a culture that has more place for its dogs than it has for its children. Any culture that gives such attention to animals, to the neglect of babies in the womb, is a putrefying culture. The Bible says so, and Paul is clear. Okay? Now he gets an opportunity to speak to that culture. The Athenian culture, where does he start? He doesn't start giving them a doing. He starts by saying, you know, I've been looking around this place. And somebody said to me, I see you've been wandering around, looking around. Of course. What do you want me to do? Just sit in my bedroom? I want to find out what this place is. I want to know what happens 
in the last, you know, 58 years since I came here for the first time. I, we all want to do that because we want to contextualize. I didn't go out to, to find the post office so that I could use the post office as an illustration. I just was there. Therefore, I could say. Therefore, I could say I saw the George Best poster. That's contextualizing. It, as opposed to, oh, the Yankees come. He's going to tell us all about America, you know. Well, no, I'm not going to do that. I have really no interest in doing that. But, but I, wanted, I want to know where I am. And I want to know people. I want people to know that I know where I am. And that I count it a privilege to be where I am. That's what Paul was doing. I can see. And then straight in. The God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he in need of any one of you. You, God does not need you. You need God. And in an environment where our contemporary environment, where we're tempted to play fast and loose with the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Paul starts there. In the beginning, God. And he moves through that very skillfully. And what is he doing? He's contextualizing the gospel. Surely that is a precy of what he actually said. That can't be the whole talk. I mean, if you read it, or you can read it in three minutes. So, so Luke has presumably given us uh, the, 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 the gist of it. But he gets eventually, and when they heard of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, they said, okay, we've heard enough now. We're on our way. So, uh, you know, the danger, in the, the danger of not being contextualized is that you, you just appear to be completely remote, that you don't have a clue what's going on. The danger of embracing a kind of, you know, thing where you, if, if we're not careful, contextualization can almost become our hermeneutic. And so then, then that is the, the driving force rather than the, rather than the text as the driving force, that, that, that our unfolding of the text within the context is, uh, is, is, the, is the skill. And some are better than others at doing this. I, I don't find it comes very easy to me. Um, and there are some, some, you know, some who are very, very good at it. No, that's really helpful. Last question on preaching, Alistair. Um, the rule of unction in preaching, you referenced it on Monday night, shared an illustration, or Monday morning, shared an illustration about... Uh, from a friend of yours who said, don't be giving us any of that unction stuff or something probably more refined than that. Your thoughts on unction in preaching? Well, we're not giving a lecture. We're not giving a talk. We are unfolding the truth of God's word. And we are entirely dependent upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit to clothe his word, to unfold his word, and to use our lips. You know, Calvin or Luther, you know, says what a mystery it is that the salvation of one depends on the lips of another. Well, of course, it was Calvin that said that, so you know he understood what he was really saying. However, this notion of uh, an entire dependence upon God, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the fresh enabling of the Holy Spirit, he, he promises to give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. As you read through the Acts of the Apostles again and again, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and this went on from there. Now, if you read Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd-Jones, some people think he had some strange views on certain things, and he was a mere man, but he was clear about this. He was immensely gifted. He had a phenomenal mind. His capacity was exceptional, but he believed himself to be an earthly vessel entirely in need of the endowment of power from on high. And with all that said, so we, we, we look to God for that always. I think there may be times when we have uh, 
uh, a special enablement that God chooses to give. Um, I used to, in my younger days, get myself up into some kind of lather, trying to, you know, figure out whether I had it or whether I didn't have it. At the same time, when you didn't preach, when you didn't have a chance to preach all the time, trying to figure out what am I supposed to preach on? Can I stay up half the night? No, maybe not that. Maybe that. Maybe that. Oh, I don't know. What am I supposed to preach on? Derry Prime told me, preach the Bible. I said, well, what bit? He says, any bit you want. It's the Word of God, for goodness sake. That set me free. So then I said, okay, so I choose the Bible. What bit are you going to do? Well, we understand there's places and times. But nevertheless, so we look for that. To intrude on my own thing, I'll just tell you this. When I, went to, when I went to preach, when I went to Charlotte Chapel, and I was 23 to, to be assistant to Derek, the first time I got to preach there, I couldn't get spit in my mouth. It was the most unbelievably horrible experience. I was just completely shoo. And not only that, but I was away up in that thing, and Derek was down there looking up. And, and I remember I, I, I used an Alan Redpath sermon because I thought, you know, I might as well use something that was good, you know, and I kind of shimmied around a little bit and tried to, try to put it, you know, make it sound like me. And it was, oh, it was, it was terrible. And then the next time it was worse. And we, we lived in a flat in Marchmont and, and I had as a study a box room. It was about the size of that table with walls, and uh, my wife painted it brown. So it was a horrible little room. And, uh, and so now I'm going to have to preach on a, on, a Sunday, on a Sunday morning, and I'm right back in this thing. And I said to myself, I said, okay, if this is how this is, I'm not doing this. If this is, if this is how this thing works, I am out of this game. I wasn't even ordained at this point. I was ordained in 76. So this is 75. And so I went in that room like at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I laid down, face down on the floor. And I said, Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not provide for me beyond the natural resources that I have, because I've always been able to speak. I was in the debating society at school. I can speak. I know I can speak. But we're not just speaking. We're preaching. We're the servants of the Word of God. Now, all I'll tell you is this. I no longer have the box room. But I still know what it is to lie on the floor. That's my comment on unction. Very, very helpful, Alistair. Thank you for that. Maybe time for a question on preaching before we quickly move on to... Yes, there's a gentleman here at the front. Can I just... Did you just say where you're from, sir, and, and the church maybe you represent or ministry you're involved in? My name is George. I'm from St. Jude's Parish on Normal Road. I'm uh, involved in outreach and mission. I would like to ask you a question, Alistair, from your wealth of experience. In the last 40 years, I believe you must have preached over 100 sermons. I come from an Anglican church where you stand outside the church after the service and you shake the hands of people. And from the passage we read this morning, verse 28 of Luke chapter 4, it says, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. The life of a pastor in line with preaching. The last time you preached a sermon and nobody shook your hand when you were standing outside the door. What do you do as a pastor when you get home? I have two, I have two big guys stand beside me. <laughs> um, the last Gallic-speaking minister of um, the Presbyterian Church in New Milnes that Eric Alexander was the minister of before he went to the throne and Ian Hamilton was. That minister wrote a hymn which began with the line, 
courage, brothers, do not stumble. Okay? He was obviously having a bad week. And it, it has this, it has a verse in it that goes like this. Some will love thee, some will hate thee, some will praise thee, some will slight. Cease from man and look above thee, trust in God and do what's right. Ezekiel, do not be afraid of their faces. So, even when God has enabled us to be winsome and to be kind, but at the same time to be straightforward, I am never disappointed by that kind of vociferous reaction. The reaction that is most disappointing, I think should be most disappointing to us all, is when, our, when the congregation uh, damn us with faint praise. Thank you, that was lovely. How could it possibly be lovely? Of all the things it was, it wasn't lovely. Why did you say that? Well, you're not going to say that, but that's it. That's it. So, um, you know, I, I have, uh, I've learned, uh, <laughs> just don't shake everybody's hand. <laughs> you know, can I give you something? Do you know this from Perkins, William Perkins? Talking about preaching, I have found this immensely helpful. You can find this easy, but uh, on, on um, the characteristics of those to whom we preach, when Perkins in his day outlined uh, seven, seven, seven groups that are out there, I'll just give them to you quickly. He, here he says, you have to have in mind, not in the forefront of your mind, but you've got to have it somewhere that you have out there these categories of listeners. Number one, non-Christians who know nothing about the gospel and don't care. Okay? They're out there always. God willing, they are. Two, non-Christians who know nothing about the gospel but are teachable. Three, those who know what the gospel is but have never been humbled to see their need of a savior. Four, those who have been humbled, some in the early stages of seeing their need, others who see that they need salvation, not merely improvement, and are convinced that only Christ can save them. Five, genuine believers who need to be taught. Six, backsliders who are in that condition either as a result of failing to be taught or as a result of failure to live consistently in the light of what they have been taught. Seven, a mixed congregation of believers and non-believers. I find that very, very helpful. And I would say to you, those of you who are Presbyterians, that this is what I find when I come into a Presbyterian church. And I was just at a church in Philadelphia because I was doing a wedding there. Because of the strong influence of covenant theology. The liturgy, such as it exists, within Presbyterianism that I have encountered, is very, very inclusive. If, if you're like, in a Presbyterian church, you've got to opt out of it, because, because this, we, we are the covenant people of God. We have gathered here as the covenant people of God. I'm sitting there going, I'm not one of the covenant people of God. What are you talking about? Whereas in the circles in which I move, the person is going to have to opt in because we've made it pretty clear to them early on, you're not part of the covenant people of God. And so what we have to guard against is, is a kind of terminology that isolates the people by the, 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 the phraseology that we use and what a more inclusive covenantal kind of perspective needs to guard against is creating the notion that everybody who wandered their way into the place since they were baptized at one point in their pilgrimage, they're actually members of, of the whole deal. And so then in the proclaiming of the gospel, people are trying to figure all that stuff out. But the categories of listeners I find to be helpful then because it saves me. I like to think, imagine that three of my immediate neighbors are sitting on the front row. So when you're about to launch off on something, you think about what it, how it will be heard by the guy that lives next door. Thanks, Alistair. We've got two or three minutes left for this last question, and then we want uh, Lorraine to share so that we can finish at half two and keep uh, to our promise regarding the time. The personal life of the pastor, the preaching life of the pastor, and just this last question, the pastor as the shepherd leader. A Bible college, I think it's fair to say, Alistair, or seminary can't teach you to be a leader, and you've been a leader in Parkside for 30, 35 years pastor as the shepherd leader, if 
final words of encouragement and exhortation? Well, I think I would say, you know, I think what Paul is saying to Timothy is, if you don't follow, you can't lead. So that it is as we follow Jesus that we lead others. And if we ourselves are, are, not, are not following Christ in an, in an engaged and in an obviously um, uh, pro progressive way or, 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 or advancing way, then, uh, you know, we, we've really got very little to offer because no, no organization, I mean, I mean, look at Manchester United. Whatever, whatever's going on there, it has to do with a large part with that guy Woodward and Mourinho. That is the leadership. That translates to the team on the field. No church, no orchestra, no, no army can ever advance beyond its leaders. Therefore, it, it puts tremendous pressure to go all the way back around, doesn't it? To, it comes back to this question of godliness. Um, submit to those who, who are your leaders. They, they, they keep watch over your souls as men who must give an account. Well, then we have to remind our congregation, I will be your servant, but you will never be my master. I only, we only have one master, and that is the Lord Jesus himself. We're both following him. Therefore, ultimately, I'm not accountable to you. If I read the Bible correctly, and I don't mean this in an arrogant way, I'm actually accountable for you. And being accountable for you is a far scarier prospect than being accountable to you. And I'm accountable for your souls. Therefore, I take seriously what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 when he says, uh, you know, physical fitness has a certain value. But spiritual fitness is essential. This is J.B. Phillips. Spiritual fitness is essential both for this life and for the life to come. So uh, a, a, church, a church that is going to grow spiritually is going to grow under the leadership of leaders who are growing spiritually. And so it comes back to the old thing. You know, if you want to, if you want to learn, teach. And if you want to lead, follow. Alistair, thank you so much. Can we give Alistair a round of applause and just to thank him for all that he's shared. Thank you, Alistair. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.